Hi there. Welcome to Season 2 of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Casey Kanghead. Casey's journey just floored me with what she had to endure, and I was deeply moved by the love and presence demanded of her and her family by this seemingly unending diagnosis. Casey's the author of Finding Your Way Back to Heart Center. Cancer treatment ended, now what? She's a cancer survivorship coach, helping women thrive post-treatment, stronger physically, mentally, and emotionally through her program, A Happier, Healthier You. She's also a personal trainer and a cancer exercise specialist, Casey's based out of Chicago, and she's a dog mom to a Maltipoo named Lily. Casey's been cancer-free for three and a half years. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. I was thrilled when you said yes, that you do this. It's great to meet you. It's very nice to meet you. Thank you. Will you begin by letting everyone know what you were diagnosed with and how old you were? Sure. I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia at 31. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia at 31. And so will you explain a little bit just what that is? Not you don't have to go into great detail, but just an idea of what part of the body it affects. Sure. So it is a blood cancer and acute lymphoblastic leukemia is typically a children's cancer to begin with. Um, it's really rare for adults to have it, and I think yearly just about 1,500 people worldwide as adults are diagnosed with it. Um, typically, children from ages 1 to 5 get diagnosed with what I've got, and it's just a mutation in the, in the blood cells. So does that come from the, uh, the bone marrow? Yeah, it is. It is directly correlated to you know, the cells mutating from the actual bone, bone marrow itself that's in your, you know, pelvis, I guess you could say. Okay. And mm -hmm. so how did you discover that you had acute lymphoblastic leukemia? Did I say that right? Yeah. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> trust me. I stumble upon it all the time. I, so I started not feeling great um, at the end of December of 2013. And I just thought, you know, it's the holidays, it's getting colder, didn't really think about it, thought it maybe was like the flu, but just it wasn't, I wasn't getting sick enough to like go to the doctor or anything, just wasn't feeling great. Then at the beginning of January, I started to really, I, I felt something in my neck, a node. And I was like, hmm, I'm like, that doesn't feel right. I asked my husband, I go, feel this, is this normal? He goes, no, he goes, you should probably get that checked out. And I thought like, maybe it's the flu, like, and that's just what's happening. So I went to an ENT, I skipped the GP, um, the general practitioner, <laughs> went directly yeah. to the ENT and he goes, huh, that's not right. He goes, well, let's give you 10 days of antibiotics and come back in two weeks. And I said, okay, great, fantastic. So I took the 10 days of antibiotics, scheduled my follow-up two weeks later. So I stopped taking the antibiotics on a Monday. By the time Friday hit, I started to not be able to breathe I was having really shortness of breath. I was having oh trouble my. walking upstairs. Um, I started developing bruises everywhere to the point where my boss pulled me into her office and asked if my husband was beating me because mm -hmm. it was so, bruises were everywhere. 
Um, because literally if I touched a table, I'd end up with a bruise. Like it was crazy. I had really petechiae, which are clusters of red dots all over my skin. And that those were like the three main components of what I was feeling. So by the time Friday rolls around and I went to work that morning and I knew something wasn't right, I had trouble walking up the stairs. I usually took the stairs up three flights to the office and I was having trouble walking up three at a time. And I was having to take a break walking up that morning. I walk into the office. My coworkers kept asking me if I was hungover because I looked so bad. And I go, no, I'm just tired. Just really tired today. I don't know what's happening. So my boss pulls me to her office again and she goes, are you okay? I go, I don't know, but I'm going to the doctor at noon on my lunch hour. I go, I think I'm anemic or something because I, I'm pale as a ghost. I go, I'm really tired. I go, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but something's definitely going on. Yeah. She goes, okay. She goes, okay, great. I think my husband instinctively knew something was going on bigger than what I had even realized. Cause he goes, I'm going to go with you to the ENT. I go, okay, that's weird. All right, sure. So I go to the ENT and the ENT looks at me and he goes, you need to go see an internist right now. And I, and he didn't panic. He just said it very like, let's get you in. So it's in a different building from where I was at with him. And he goes, I'm going to call over there and get you an appointment. And I'm like, oh God, I'm going to be here all afternoon. We walk over to the other building and the guy saw me immediately, the doctor, mm. the internist. And I knew right then and there, something wasn't right because the waiting room was full. So I get in there okay. and he's, you know, checking. First of all, he puts like the blood, blood ox on my finger and it can't, it can't find a reading. It's not getting anything. And he's like checking so my, my. He put the what on your finger? The, oh, the blood uh, oxygen the blood read. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Couldn't get anything. And he's like, huh, this is weird. Like he's like thought it was the blood oxygen reader. And he goes, I'm going to go get another one. But in the meantime, he's like, you know, checking my lungs and all this stuff. And he's like, I could see the, the thing, the wheel spinning on his face. And he goes, he goes, are and he's checking my arms, seeing all these bruises, seeing the red dots. And he goes, how long have you been feeling like this? And I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, I had antibiotics. I stopped on Monday. You know, it's Friday. This is, you know, a few days. I go, the bruises, it's weird. And he goes, huh. He goes, are you having trouble breathing? And I was like, well, I go walking upstairs. Yeah. I go walking around 50, 50. I'm like, it's not great, but you know, is it the flu? He goes, Hmm. He goes, in the meantime, the nurse came back in with a new blood ox reader and she puts it on my finger, still can't get anything. She goes, he goes, looks at me, he goes, let's get up and walk around the office for a minute. Let's see if we can get a reading. And in that time, he's like looking at me, the rut, the blood ox reader still isn't picking anything up. And he's just like, he goes, you know, he goes, you have two options. I'm leaving this weekend on holiday with my family. He goes, but he goes, you have to go get blood work done you can go to an outside facility, get it done or get it done here and we'll get the results and go over them. He goes, but he goes, the quickest way to get results goes because I'm leaving this weekend would be to go and admit yourself to the emergency room. And I was like, well, that's weird. Why would somebody suggest that? Right. And, you know, cognitively my looking back, I wasn't all there. So there was a lot of like, that's weird, but nothing really registered in my head. So I go, well, let's just get this over with and I'll 
going to the hospital. Meantime, I'm texting my boss like, oh, they want to run some blood work, blah, 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 you know, updating her to know, to let her know that I'm not coming back this afternoon. So in the meantime, he goes, let's put you in a wheelchair because you look like you're having trouble breathing. And I was like, all right, fine. I'll take the free ride because <laughs> it's in a different building and we had to go outside and, or I'm mean, not outside, but underneath a tunnel. It's, it was quite far. And I get into the emergency room and they pick up my blood work. And in the meantime, I was like, yeah, something's not right in my like lower back hurts, like, but not a big deal. Thought it was like from exercise or something. And the emergency room doctors in the meantime were like, okay, we'll go get an x-ray. And in the meantime, we'll wait for your blood work to get back. Well, I'm laying there and they're like, so we're going to have to give you blood because your hemoglobins are at a four. You have four hemoglobins. The typical range for a healthy human is 14 to 16. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, that's not right. Let's do this. Let's get like, get some blood work. They're like, we're going to get a bolus starting, which is, you know, the IV fluids started some blood work and he comes back in a little bit later and hands this piece of paper to my husband. And I clearly don't remember this part very well. So my husband had to tell me back. He goes, we think it's this. And he hands my husband the piece of paper. He goes, it might be cancer. And I kind of blacked out when he said that word, but my husband told me that's what he said. And I looked over at my husband as he's opening up the piece of paper. I go, what does it say? What does it say? And he goes, he's like reading. He goes, hold on. He looks at me. He goes, they think it's cancer. And I was like, what? I go, you're kidding, right? And he goes, no, I'm not kidding. And I was like, okay. And I kind of was like in shock, basically. Like I just, it didn't, it still didn't correlate to me at that moment that what the ramifications of that word and what he said. And my husband goes, they think it's a children's cancer because that's what the, you know, it was like a basic Google search printout that he gave him because they can't confirm you have blood cancer until they do a bone bi marrow biopsy. Mm. So this is just what their hunch was based on everything that I was experiencing and the fact that I only had three, four hemoglobins and my white blood cell count was off the charts. So they're like, we're going to have to transfer you downtown to Northwestern Hospital in Chicago. They're like, because I was at just at like one of their offsite offices uh, that was closer to my office at, at the time. So I was like 30 miles away. I was like, okay, great. I'm like, do we get in a car? Like, cause I'm still like hooked up to getting blood. Like mm. what's happening? They're like, no, we have to get you, give you another bag of blood before we can even transfer you. We're going to take you via ambulance. And I looked at him and I go, dead serious. I looked at him, which mind you, this is a terrible thing that I just said, but that I'm going to say, but I said this, I looked at him dead, dead face. And I said, well, am I going to the children's hospital or the adult hospital? Because this is a children's cancer. And he looked at me as if I like was mentally disturbed or something. He goes, you're going to the adult hospital. Like, duh. And I, I go, okay, good. Because my husband can't be within a hundred feet of children. <laughs> my husband looks at me I said it so dead face my husband looked at me like, oh dear god and puts his hand in his head the doctor immediately just fucking left the room I'm sorry <laughs> no, <it's fine>. no way 
immediately just left the room. That is the day that I found out can't or doctors do not like pedophile jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, my husband is not a pedophile, but just for the record. You just were not gonna pass up the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why in that moment that was like my coping mechanism was to find humor in it. And since it was Valentine's Day <laughs> that I was diagnosed as were, they're putting me into the ambulance to transfer me downtown. One of the ladies said something about uh, cards on Valentine's Day. And I go, yeah, they, I don't think they make cancer cards that say, you know, happy Valentine's Day, you have cancer. She looked at me and she just says, oh my God. <laughs> I, you know, I have the same coping mechanism when I, I've gone into two surgeries. Now, I think when I was, you know, yeah, when the day I was diagnosed as being playful, and the next day I lost my mind. Both surgeries I went into, you know, I'm being playful and light and having fun. Whenever I go and get my CT scans and I have weird sensations and I'm wondering if the cancer's come back as it has once, I always make jokes because that's just how I operate. I'm like, if I'm going to go through this, I'm going to be laughing because like the alternative, not that it's a conscious thought, right? But the alternative is just, I'm going to let it in later. Not right now with this group. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's just one of those reactions. And I just, it's the weirdest thing. And then I'm, I was like, well, are we going to have the lights on? I was like really excited. And they're like, no, we're not having the lights on. And I was like, okay. Like, well, that's disappointing. <laughs> Can you do lights and sirens? I know. I was like, just once. And they're like, no, we can't legally do that. And I was like, are you sure? <laughs> Like, this is, this is what I was thinking. Like, I want an ambulance ride with the whole deal. <laughs> if we're going to do this, we're doing this right. <laughs> yeah. They were like, no, no, we can't do that. And meanwhile, like, my husband's up front with the one lady, and there's one lady in back with me. And she was like, are you okay? Like, you know, very comforting, very motherly. And I'm just sitting there going, yeah, I'm just really tired. And, I, and, and I'm all I'm thinking in my head at that moment is, we're going downtown Chicago in rush hour. This is going to I go, can we just do the lights? Like, all I'm thinking is this is going to be, like, the longest ambulance ride in my life. <laughs> in rush hour trap. Well, it wasn't rush hour. It was, like, uh, like 7 o'clock on a Friday, but still. So we get down to the finally downtown, and, it, of course, it took, like, an hour and a half because you're in an ambulance. Everyone's cutting you off. They wouldn't it's put the going. lights on? No, they wouldn't put the lights on. They're like, it's not an emergency situation. We can't put the lights on. And I'm like, oh, well, that's disappointing. Well, all right, let's do this. You know, like, what are you going to do? Like, I was begging. Like, I was like, all right, well, I tried. So, you know, <laughs> we're admitted into the emergency room. And they, in the meantime, give me another bag of blood, more fluids. And I looked at my husband and I go, you have to call my dad. And he looked at me and he goes, he goes, are you sure? And I was like, you have to tell him that I'm in the hospital because we don't know how long. Like, I was like, I don't know what the plan of care is. We don't know anything. They wouldn't give us any information. Mostly because they couldn't confirm that it was what it was at that moment either. Um, even though like 99% of what I was experiencing is exactly to a T mm. what the signs and symptoms are for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And so it's like 10 o'clock at night and my dad coaches high school basketball 
And so it's a Friday night. I go, I know he's just got a game. Catch him before he leaves downtown because he coached in the city at the time before he leaves to go back home so he can just come here. It'll save him the trip. And he goes, okay. He leaves him a voicemail. Doesn't pick up because, you know, he's in the game like or, or at the school and, you know, kids and whatnot. So I'm like, okay, just leave him a message to call back, but don't like, you know, panic him. Just say I'm, you know, in the hospital. No big deal. And so keeps calling, keeps calling nothing. So finally, like at midnight and we're still sitting in the ER, my dad calls uh, my husband back and goes, what are you guys doing? Like, what's going on? And, uh, you know, my husband tells him because I couldn't, I couldn't even say the words at the time. Mm-hmm. I couldn't say the word of cancer. I couldn't, I couldn't even. So he, I go, but he goes, okay, he goes, I'm just going to tell him to come down to the hospital and then I'll tell him. He goes, are you sure you don't want to tell him? I go, I can't say it. Can't do it. You have to tell him. So before my dad came into the like room that they section off with, you know, a cloth in the ER, my, I can hear my husband talking to my dad and I couldn't hear the, what they were saying, but I knew they were talking. So my, my dad comes in. My dad just goes, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. It's fine. And I was like, okay. He's like, he told me it's going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Yeah. You know, so finally at like two or three in the morning, they finally get me into a room. And I just remember the nurse being like so cheerful at like three in the morning that I was just like, wow, I want the drug she's on. (laughs) You know, but that's her shift. Like that's what she does. At 3 a.m., she just finished lunch. She's feeling good. Yeah, she's coffee. like in her in her zone. <laughs> she's good to go. So, yeah, that was like, that was the day that I was diagnosed. It was crazy. Yeah, what a day. Mm-hmm. Like mine was like, I had, a, I had rectal cancer, so the doc gave me a digital exam, asked me, do you have cancer in your family? Gives me a scope, says there's so much blood I can't see. We need to have you get a <gasps> colonoscopy. So I had oh. like four days before I got the diagnosis, you know, so I had like prepared my family, said, let's have a call. It was in 2007. So, you know, we used like a a group line where we dial, you know, dial a certain number in a passcode conference line, Mm -hmm. user conference line, you know, and so everyone was prepared. Like it's, as I'm listening to you, that's what came to mind was just like, you know, your husband calling your dad to have him come in, like, no time to process and to prepare just like you go to the doc the emt Mm -hmm. because you're not feeling well yeah and by 3 a.m you're certain that you have cancer yeah i mean it wasn't confirmed but everything pointed to being very sick and something was clearly wrong you know it was uh yeah, you know, you, your brain doesn't process. It just immediately goes into flight or flight, survival mode, just immediately. Yeah, yeah. And I was on a cancer support group call, my monthly uh, colorectal support group. I was on that call yesterday. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about how when you get diagnosed, cancer isn't in the realm of possibilities. No, it's so like the I, farthest thing from what you think. As you'd said, you know, moments ago that you you weren't putting it together. It's because you're not, you know, most human beings don't listen for, ooh, might this be cancer? I mean, there are some folks that's in their family and it's so, you know, present. But for 
many of us, perhaps most of us, you know, we don't, we're not looking down that, you know, even considering that possibility. Mm-mm. So here you are, you know, the doctor got their gears spinning. You can see in their eyes that they're doing a lot of processing. Like I remember, you know, you said you walked around the office with him so he could just kind of yeah. get a sense. After my chemo was over for my first diagnosis, I was short of breath just walking 50 feet. And so I went in and to the oncologist office and they put the thing on my finger and they're like, your blood count is good. And they're walking me around with the blood count thing and that seems good. We get home and they give me a phone call and they say, so we need you to come back right now. You have a pulmonary embolism. For those of you who are listening, that means it's a blood clot between my heart and lung. Uh-huh. Like it's, and uh, it's blocking like 60% of the blood from going to your right lung. So you need to come down here right now. Which was the short of breath. Yes. Oh, my God. So just, I mean, all this emotion was rising up in me. Like I was getting warm as you were telling that story. Because it's like just, they're going down the list and mm-hmm. testing you. Casey for different things as they were me and their gears are spinning and they put it all together and we have no like I've already been diagnosed with cancer and treatment's over now and it never dawned on me that I would have a pulmonary embolism like you know why would you and then I'm like so what does that mean they're like well if it dislodges it will go straight into your heart and your heart will stop beating I'm like that wouldn't be good (laughs) right but it's like like, should I not jump into up and down should I walk slowly they're like no just get in the car and get down here (laughs) that's it like i shouldn't like get an ambulance and helicopter i don't know like uh something no just come down here yeah it's 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 just incredible how we get to these places you said tell me what the dots were i I looked it up you said peta petechia petechiae petechiae so you had these red dots just all over your skin was it head to toe um, so they cluster. So I had little clusters like all over my legs. So it was, it didn't look like, it looked like, um, patches of rashes everywhere. So it wasn't like one continuous big rash. It was like just patches everywhere. And there are little tiny red dots. And it kind of looks like if you didn't know, it's like a red ant bite, I guess, for lack of like a better comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I searched it while you were talking. Dots. These little yeah. clusters of red dots, yeah. And were they visible to your boss? They were mostly on my legs and feet, so okay. she couldn't see them. All she could see were bruises everywhere. And I mean, we were at a charity function that Tuesday night, and I had reached for a glass, and I had a sweater on, reached for a glass of water that was on the table, and she's sitting next to me, and there's a giant bruise on my on my leg right, right here that, you know, as soon as I grabbed for the glass, the sweater went up. The sweater and your wrist, went up, yes, it revealed and it. And she could see it. So it kind of looked like if you didn't know, someone grabbed me and like just wrenched my wrist so hard mm. that it left this giant bruise. And I mean by giant, it was right, it was this big on my arm. And I immediately went like this because I was like, oh, that's weird. I didn't even notice it, which is weirder. Um, and my boss who was sitting next to me and actually at the time we were at a Bulls charity event, Jimmy Butler was on the other side of her and both of them noticed and I immediately was just like, didn't acknowledge it. Jimmy Butler? Oh, Jimmy Butler of the Bulls, of the Bulls at the time. Now he plays of the Bulls. Like, okay, thank you. A Bulls event, yeah. Chicago Bulls yeah. event. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they both noticed, like, wow, like, 
I just want to take a moment to acknowledge your boss. I mean, that's a courageous thing. I mean, for some people it's automatic, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, I have to ask you this question. And she did. Some people choose to, you know, I'm going to wait. I'm going to, I'm not ready to, 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 and she didn't. She just stepped right in and asked. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. Which is funny because like the office I worked at, uh, the company was so small that like everyone knew my husband, like that's just not in his demeanor. It's not in Mm. his, like, uh, he's not a, he doesn't even, he doesn't even like yelling, like confrontation is not his thing. So that's why I think it was even more uncomfortable for her to ask is because, you know, we hung out outside of work. Like, you know, it was that close of an office where everyone knew each other. And, you know, on some level, very intimately about each other's lives because of family and all of these events that we had done together and Christmas parties and things, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it was probably a very uncomfortable conversation that she was like, I have to do this. Yeah. Did she ask you right there at the table? No, she no, she pl- the next day. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You said she pulled you into your, her office. So she slept on it and yeah. she was like, okay, I'm asking her this question. Well, thank heavens for her. She sounds great. Yeah, she is. So 3 a.m., there you are in the hospital Mm -hmm. with your husband and your dad. Mm -hmm. And what was next? Uh, So it's on a weekend, which really didn't help my situation at all. And Mm -hmm. Northwestern is a teaching hospital. So you're not just getting like the doctors doing rounds. You're getting a team always. And so, you know, they, they always ask ask me first if it's okay that they bring in, you know, more than just your doctor and the pharmacist, they ask if they can bring in the medical students as well. And I, I was like, fine, whatever. So it's always like seven or eight people in the room always. So we're on a weekend and they're like, well, we just need to run a bunch of tests and figure out what's going on. So, I mean, like that whole weekend, it was so jam packed. Like, I don't remember a lot of it. Like, it was just being shuttled from one test to another. MRI yeah. scans, all all these things, you know. Meanwhile, they're just giving me blood and, and liquids and making sure that, you know, they figure it out. So, but I will backstory to Saturday morning when they walk in for rounds. I'm, like, really tired because I've been up since 3 in the morning. So, I don't remember that morning. But Sunday morning the team walks in or I'm sorry, Monday morning, the team walks in. So you've been admitted. Yeah, I was admitted and they didn't tell me how long it was going to be there. They're just like, we have to run a bunch of tests. So like those two days that weekend, don't really remember it. I just remember being in bed and then in tests. And that's all I remember. Monday morning, the team walks in because on the weekend, obviously the the full team is not there. You get just the doctor who gets stuck with that weekend shift. So they're just like managing things. They're not actually doing, uh, pres- you know, prescribing plant care. Um, Monday, the team walks in and there are like 12 of them actually. And I haven't showered in three days because I'd been shuffled around to so many tests and hooked up to an IV and you can't just go shower when you want, you have to like get, you know, get unhooked and it's a whole thing. You have to have a nurse. I mean, there wasn't time um, between all the tests because they wanted to get them in. So 12 
gorgeous human beings walked in the room. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was like the set of Grey's Anatomy walked in the flipping room. I am not joking. I was just like, oh, what is happening? Meanwhile, I probably smell. I know I smelled. I haven't showered in three days. And like, I am like not at all comfortable with anything that's happening. So they're like poking, prodding, doing their thing. And they're like, okay, we think we have a plan of care and we think this is what you're going to be doing. And the doctor that does rounds isn't necessarily the doctor that's going to treat you long-term either. So the doctor was like, your plan, your main doctor is going to be Dr. Dinner, but I'm here in the meantime because she's not on rounds, blah, 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 goes into the whole thing. Meanwhile, all these, there's like 12 humans just staring at me, gorgeous humans. I'm just like, okay. They're like, we're going to start you on chemo. But before that, we're going to do a bone marrow biopsy um, this morning. So some one of the uh, medical students is going to come back and do that. And then we're going to start you on chemo. And I was like, okay, sounds good. They're like, you'll, they hand me a stack of papers. And they're like, this is what you're going to be doing. This is your protocol. Mind you, this is not confirmed yet with a bone marrow biopsy, but they were so sure of what I had that they already gave me the release forms. And so they're like, look them over, you have to sign them. And then, you know, when they come back, they'll collect, the nurse will collect them, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, great. So they walk out of the room. I look over at my husband. I go, what just happened? I go, I'm showering immediately. Those are like 12 really attractive, smart human beings. I am not doing this. And I smell, I go, I'm showering right now before they come back for the bone marrow biopsy. This is, I feel disgusting. So now was he shocked or was he like nodding? Like, like he goes, yeah, they were, uh, they were really attractive. (laughs) Every single one of them. There was not like an unattractive human in that group. It's amazing how that matters. We're like, no way am I going to be smelly in front of these people. I know. They don't care. They've My hair's a mess. Right, right. Yeah. Way worse. But vanity kicks in, obviously. It is amazing how that part of the mind can be so active at a time when we are just trying to stay alive. Right. So the, oh the, um, the one medical student comes back later, super attractive, of course, of course. I'm like, all mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, bone marrow biopsies are in and of themselves some really painful things. I, yeah. found, out, I found out I have a really high tolerance for pain. Mm. So the medical student goes in. He goes, okay. He goes, these are really painful. He goes, we're going to give you some drugs so you don't feel it. And I was like, great perfect i don't want to feel this so they give me dilaudid for the first time Mm. and it's really freaking strong it's liquid uh iv dilaudid too not the pill form and so um, instantaneously i go (laughs) i look over at my husband i go i know why people do drugs now (laughs) (laughs) and he goes what are you doing because i'm just sitting there smiling like holy cow, this is like the best experience of my life. Just loopy. Oh, yeah. When I, I had, oh. a, I had um, abdominal pain from chemo. Mm-hmm. And I had my buddy drive me to the hospital. 
and they gave me Dilaudid, and I just melted away, and I woke up hours later just feeling mm -hmm. wonderful. And it's so true what you say. Like when I was little, they would say, don't do drugs. Drugs are horrible. They'll destroy your life. Okay, but nobody said the reason they'll destroy your life is because you're going to feel fantastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, you're going to feel the best you've ever felt even when you're sick. Yeah, that's a magical moment when they gave you IV Dilaudid. Mm -hmm. And wow, I didn't know that they... I mean, I've never had a bone biopsy. I didn't know that they can put you on uh, pain medication. That's wonderful yeah. to know. Please continue. So, so you lay on your stomach and then, you know, you're this, the sacrum, the back, the, the meaty part of your lower back, um, you know, where the tramp stamps are, that is, that is where they take the bone marrow from. So it is quite, uh, for lack of a better word, like carpentry. They literally take a long tube and drill into you. Okay. I'm my whole, I'm getting the whole heebie-jeebies yeah. now. Which is why they give you the meds they do. Well, first, they, they also give you um, what is the lidocaine right around the where they're going to do the mm. biopsy. And the incision is about, like, it's really small. It's, like, less than that. Um, but so they drill down. And it literally feels like they're taking a screwdriver and going like this. It feels like that. You could feel it. You hear, hear the bones in your body. Like, it's crazy. And he gets in there mm. and he's like, oh, goes your bones really like hard like and I can feel the, him working for it so <laughs> you know I it's crazy he's like if this gets uncomfortable just tell me I'm like no we're good keep going keep going and for I just want to say that for the folks who are listening when she said the incision is about that it's like what about an inch right yeah like at the size of your pinky it's nothing very yeah, okay. like the tip of your pinky very very small and um pulls out the first uh bone marrow because they literally take a sliver of your bone that's why mm. they're drilling down for it and then they snap it off your body and pull it out so he pulls it out and he goes huh that doesn't look right he goes maybe i missed and i was like what do you mean you missed he said that out loud yeah he goes he goes it's not supposed to look like that he goes maybe i missed the spot so he does this whole thing again he goes i'm gonna try on the other side i go okay fine he goes, how are you feeling? I go, I feel fine still. I feel fucking great. Are you <laughs> kidding great. me? So he goes, okay, let's do this. So it goes again. The whole thing, right? Pulls it out. He goes, huh. Because that doesn't look right either. He goes, no. He goes, no. it's really rare that I miss twice. And I was like, all right. I'm thinking in my head, I've never had one. I don't know what to expect. I don't know what it's supposed to look like or do. And he goes, he goes, would it be okay if I tried one more time? I go, okay. I, he goes, how are you feeling? I go, I feel fine still. Like it's kind of wearing off, but it's kind of not. I'm like, it's, there's in it. It's just like, it feels like a pressure. So there's so much pressure being put on you, even with the meds that it feels like you can't catch your breath almost. Like that's the only way mm -hmm. I can describe it. Yeah, I've so had that experience just, before from yeah. the sedatives. Yeah. So he goes, he goes the third time. He goes, I'm going to go back to the other side and see if we can do this. I go, okay, all right, let's do it. Before the meds wear off, let's, let's go. So he does it another time. Same thing, pulls it out. And he goes, he goes, I know I did not miss that time. Normally he goes, they're supposed, it's supposed to look like a sliver. It's like a three or four inches long sliver of bone that looks like 
bloody piece of wood is the best way I could describe it is what it's supposed to look like. My cortical bone was so compacted. It looked like he kept just pulling bone out. It was just what does white. Compacted like, mean? So there was no blood in it. There was absolutely no blood, no nothing in it. It just was bone. So if like you cut off your finger and you see the bone, it just was bone. Like if somebody washed it off, it was white, completely white. Each and there's sample. supposed to be red marrow in there. Yeah, it's supposed to look like a bloody piece of wood. Oh my goodness. So he wasn't missing. It was just he coming was. up empty. It was. What was the look was on his face like? Shocked. He was like, this isn't, he goes, I, I'm not going to do it again. He goes, I have enough. I know I didn't miss three times. I can't do this to you again. So we'll see what, it, what, come, what the results come back with. And in my mind, I'm like, all right, whatever. I don't know what you just said either. So cool. So you're you're kind of high and yeah. kind of ignorant of the whole procedure. So you're just Correct. like, okay. I mean, it doesn't look like what it's supposed to look like. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> if you think I'm sick, obviously it's not going to look like what it's supposed to, but whatever. I don't know. I just logically in my brain was like, didn't it didn't make a significant impact at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he leaves and they come back in like hours later and they're like, we're going to start you on chemo. Meanwhile, in between the, them taking the marrow and them starting chemo, I'm reading through all like the information they give you. And it's a stack. Like it's not a lot, like a little, and they're like all the side effects from treatment from undergoing chemo and how long the protocol is and all this stuff. Like I was on a two year long protocol. Mm. they had it all laid out for me already and I was like wow this is a really long time I go so I can go home though right because now that we're starting chemo I can go home and you took the all the bone marrow biopsies all this stuff right I'm just thinking in my head I can go home after this like tomorrow maybe the next day I'll get to go home and I'm reading I get to the last page and it says something about a stroke in my mind at that time I laughed in my head and said, who gets a stroke from chemo? And I just kept moving on. Gave the papers back. They start me on chemo. And they're like, you're probably going to lose your hair. You know, it's pretty typical. They're like, not everyone does, but some people do. And I was like, okay. You know, everything that we've seen from cancer and the images that that, uh, our society puts us in, I'm like, okay, I know what to expect. At least what it's going to look like. So they start me on, on chemo and the next day, I think I asked the, the rounding team of doctors, gorgeous doctors, <laughs> you know, how long was I going to be here in the hospital? Because I saw the treatment plan and it's aggressive and they're like, you're not leaving for like a month. And I was like, wow. what? Time out. I'm going to be here. How long? And this is what day? Is this Monday? Yeah, this is Monday or Tuesday. Of so you've been, that. You went to the EMT. Was mm-hmm. it on a Friday? ENT on a Friday. Yep. ENT, right? And EMT yeah. is something different. Yeah. ENT on a yeah. Friday. Mm-hmm. And now it's Monday or Tuesday, and they tell you you're not leaving for a month. Yeah, because the the protocol is so aggressive in the beginning that they want to monitor you as much as possible. I'm, you know, it's, I'm it's having this visceral response. Like I'm, I'm, you know, my mind is, you know, I've received some pretty intense diagnoses. And that's right up there. 
like you're not leaving for a month because now you're I'm I'm wondering it sounds like you know you then a you felt the gravity of the situation no in that moment I didn't still no (laughs) my first thought because my brain is messed up was I have an eyebrow appointment scheduled I'm gonna miss it oh no (laughs) And that was the second thing I was going to say. <laughs> we go to, wait, I have an eyebrow appointment. We're going to visit friends at the Airbnb on the weekend. Like, how is that supposed to happen? Yeah. Well, guess what? It's not going to. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You get, that's why I tell uh, newly diagnosed folks, I, you know, I don't, I'm not big on giving advice. But I do have my list of things I go down that I will recommend when a person is newly diagnosed. And one of them is bring someone to appointments with you. Because Mm -hmm. when you are told, for example, should you be told you're going to be in the hospital for the next month, you're not going to hear a thing about treatment because you're now figuring out how you're going to deal with your calendar and work and the appointments and deadlines and eyebrow appointments and whatever else you have going on. (laughs) The person that's with you is now writing everything down and asking Mm -hmm. questions because you're in outer space. Like, what? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So you missed your eyebrow appointment. I I did, but (laughs) so, and I was, I was so, I was like, I have to tell her now. I'm like, she, I've never canceled on her. I was like, so worried about what she would think. Like, I have no idea why. So I had, I like texted her. I was like, I need to tell her now because I don't want her to like lose that spot in her calendar. I'm like, you know. I don't know why, like our brain goes to the weirdest places. Like my concern wasn't me. It was my woman that I went to, to get my eyebrows done and having an open time slot that she couldn't fill because (laughs) I'm how she makes money. Like what? Yep. Yeah. It's fascinating (laughs) where the mind goes when you get delivered that kind of news. Yeah. Next 30 days at least. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I made an appointment with her. I want to, you know, stay in integrity and honor my agreement. She needs to pay her bills. Yeah. That's why this podcast is called, but seriously, the cancer podcast, because it is just, it's, it's hysterical looking Mm -hmm. back. What, what we go through, what we deal with, what the mind does, the whole thing, it never ends. No. The insanity of it, right, right from the, uh, my husband isn't allowed within a hundred feet of children <laughs> to wait a second. I have an eyebrow appointment. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Did he tell you you have 30 days? Yeah. They were like about a month. They didn't give exact, but they was, they said about a month. And I said, okay, whew, that's a long time is all I thought in my head after I got over the, I have to tell my eyebrow lady. So then, you know, the chemo that they put you on and now I can't remember exactly what they gave me in the beginning, but it is very aggressive. And two days later or two or three days later, maybe I go to take my next, not my neck shower, but a shower. And all of a sudden I'm washing my hair and a giant clump of hair comes out. Mm. And I mean, giant. And that's, that's when it hit me. I broke down. I just, my, my knees hit the floor in the shower and I just started crying. Yeah. My husband asked me, I was like, are you okay? I was like, I don't know. The reality of what was happening was hitting. Like I can actually see the impact of what was going, going on. 
I could see what my body was doing. And I just broke, broke down. I just couldn't, everything that I'd been holding in just let, got let out in that moment. As I'm laying on a hospital bathroom floor crying. Super gross, by the way. Hospital floors in general, places you don't want to go, if you can help yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It all just showed up. It all just hit you. It all just 100%. You, you got it in that moment. Yeah. That was, that was, you know, and I just was like, okay, this is, this is what we're doing. Picked myself up, back up, got out of the bathroom. And just like, we're doing this, we're in it. And, you know, my husband kept seeing outside of the, the window uh, for a room, this man lapping the hospital ward floor. He was like, what is that guy doing? He's just like walking circles. So my husband goes out there one day, starts talking to him. This is like me sitting in bed after four or five days, I think, straight, not doing much. And the old guy goes, and my, my husband starts talking to him. I don't even know his name, still don't know his name. And he goes, you need to get her out. Just get her walking every day. He goes, don't let her sit in the room. And I was like, all right. So my husband comes back in, tells me, he goes, we got to get you up. Let's, let's go for a walk. And I was like, all right. Haven't done anything in five days since, uh, you know, we got in there. And I was like, all right. So they gown you up, put your gloves on, you know, the whole deal, because you can't, uh, it's like a static ward. So everyone that comes into your room is gowned, has a gown, gloves, and a mask, because you're so immunocompromised, they don't want you catching anything. So, oh, okay. Yeah, it's like really, it's like a static, uh, clean environment. Static means... Like, uh, just, they're really cognizant of any infections or anything. So that's why they gown you up and everything. Like, you're, I couldn't even leave the, the ward. So the guy was like, as I'm, I got all this gear on now, and I've got my IV pole, we go out there. And this guy, he's had to have been in his 70s, doing laughs. Like, it was, like, it, like it was nothing, flying by me. And I'm going, oh my God, I'm like, this is, I can't breathe. Like, I'm having a really hard time walking. Like everything hurt, like all of these things. And I'm like, I can't, I'm like, okay, we'll just like, we'll just go one, one lap, like one lap. And mind you, 17 laps equaled a mile. So I'm like, it took, it, and we timed the first time I went out there. It took me almost 20 minutes to walk five laps. And I was mm -hmm. exhausted. I came back to the room and I immediately slept, took a nap. I was like, that was exhausting. That was the most exhausting thing I think I've ever done in my life. And my husband was like, well, I think we should do this every day. He goes, let's do this. He goes, we're going to take two walks. He goes, we're going to have a morning walk and an afternoon walk. We're going to get you to the point where, you know, we're doing a mile. He goes, that's our goal right now. And we had this whiteboard that they weren't using in the room and we started tracking everything. He goes, he goes, we're going to do this every day. I go, okay. He goes, I want you to get faster and go farther every time. He goes, that's our goal. It's like, all right, smart. 
and I'm thinking in my head and he goes, my dad's like sitting there going, yeah, this is a good idea. You know, cause to get out of the hospital, you have to show that you're physically capable of being able to walk around your own house, which was the goal to get out of the hospital sooner as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. So that was my incentive, get physically able to walk and, you know, be able to maneuver myself around enough to be able to go home. Cause clearly I was not at that moment. So that became the goal every day, two walks a day, charting my progress. <laughs> and, you know, it was the best advice that man had ever said to my husband was to get her out, get her walking every day. Cause that's how you get out of this place sooner. And then the next goal was stairs because we had a huge flight of stairs in our house. And I was like, I haven't walked upstairs since I got sick. So I was like, well, we'll see about this. And in the hospital, they have like a faux set of stairs and it's literally four sets and it goes up and it goes down. And that's it. Four, 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 four stairs. Oh boy. You mean, you mean in the unit you were in? Yeah. on the There were floor. stairs there. Mm-hmm. All that went nowhere just for the purpose of of like getting... rehabbing people. <laughs> <laughs> what so, an image. Yeah. So I was like, all right, holy cow. That first flight, well, flight, I say flight, it's four stairs. Felt like I was going to pass out doing it. Wow. I felt like I was not capable of making it. So that became the next goal after walking became that. And, you know, come to find out that my bone marrow was just very compacted and they, they confirmed it obviously with, you know, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And fast forward, I got out, I think four days earlier because number one, I lived three miles away from the hospital and promised to come back four to five times a week. That's how often I was getting chemo and treatment and going back to the doctor afterward that I promised to come back and I wouldn't miss an appointment and that if I could just go home, that I would be there the next day. I just needed to sleep in my own bed because when you're in a hospital, you don't get, you don't get sleep. They wake you up during the middle of the night, take vitals. Like it's, you don't get sleep. No, you don't. I still can feel my response when couple of doctors came in to discuss my case as an, an inpatient and I looked at them and I said pardon me they're like yeah I said could you speak more softly please it's like 6 30 in the morning can you speak more softly please my roommate here is trying to sleep and one of them I mean I in my mind they you know they looked indignant as I remember but I don't know maybe they didn't at all maybe it was just me not feeling comfortable making that request but in my mind I'm like fellows what are you doing like you're talking like you're in the middle of the cafeteria and this guy over here is sleeping. Like, why are you doing that? Right. Like, and I still can't imagine to this day why, except to tell, except that perhaps people just get so comfortable. They get so comfortable that they forget that, that that doesn't work. Like sleep is one of the most important pieces of recovery. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. I completely And just your agree. wellness in general. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, someone says, how long can you go without food? How can you, how long can you go without water? How long can you go without sleep? Right. What is it? Like three days or four days, something like that? Not I don't long. Know. It's not long. Yeah. 
I get less than a certain number of hours of sleep in one night and I'm not doing well. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh, but my goodness. The funny thing is, like, because it's a teaching hospital and my case is very rare to be at the age I was at 31 with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, there was always, like, 10-ish medical students with the team every morning. And it got to the point where they were, I had fissures in my eyes. So like I had petechiae, like not petechiae, but that it had floaters in my eyes, like really bad. It was impeding some of my vision. I just see floaters all the time. And they have this thing where they look in it and they can see them. And it got to the point where I was like, okay, come here. And like, cause they were like, oh, do you want to see it to one of the med students? And they're like, do you care? I'm like, no, go for it. And he was like trying to do it. And I go, no, 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 do it this way. Go like that. And now you can see it. Right. He goes, yeah. He goes, I got it. So it sounds like they all wanted to have some experience with this very rare diagnosis. This was an opportunity for them to, yeah. hmm, to get some experience with it. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So you went home. What was it? You said a few days before the the month was up i think it actually yeah i think it was actually after i think it was march 1st or 2nd something like that with an agreement to come back four to five times a week for treatment yeah and how long was treatment each day um it depended uh definitely a few hours the longest one i think was like six hours and that was if I didn't have to go get blood or platelets and other things, which sometimes turned out into a whole day affair. Like it was very exhausting mentally, physically, emotionally. Like it was just, it's a lot, but you don't really, you're just going through the motions. They're like, go here, go here. And you're like, okay, you're just like following the, the directions and that's it. And how long did that go on? Did that, that went on for the next two years? Um, the protocol gets a little bit lighter as you go on, but, uh, then at the end of June, I had a, um, so part of the protocol of acute lymphoblastic leukemia is they do, um, what are called, um, IT chemo infusions. So what they do is they go into the middle of your spine in between the vertebrae, there's fluid. They take fluid out of your spine. They put chemo back into it that goes directly to your brain. Those are painful because if they're not done correctly and they Mm. miss, they hit nerves, which they missed a lot. Let's just put it that way. So there were, I've done over 30 something of those. I stopped counting at some point. It was just ridiculous. (laughs) So at the end of June, I had one of those. And then I ended up having a CF leak, which is basically the fluid isn't balanced in your, in your, in your spine and brain. And so it creates, um, you basically feel like you have vertigo. Like I couldn't lift my head up. I couldn't, I had a, it's a really bad headache. You were very disorientated. Um, so I, I had this and they were like, okay, well, they're like, it should clear up in a couple of days. No big deal. I was like, all right, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, right? We go home, 
and I, I'm so sick. Like I didn't, I wasn't eating. I didn't eat for like three days. Wasn't really drinking water. Like I just couldn't even lift my head up off of the couch. And finally my husband goes, we have to get you to eat. He goes, I'm ordering deep dish pizza. And I was like, all right. And I love deep dish pizza. So I'm like, I'm down. <laughs> so that was the first time I ate in three days. And I was like, I don't feel good still. I'm like, my stomach hurts. Like I'm nauseous. Like I can't lift my head up. Like I had a really hard time, like even having conversations. And so my husband calls a doctor and I'm already taking every anti-nausea medication they have, you know? And they're like, well, we can prescribe you one more. It's kind of off label Halidol, which is a, psycho uh, a psychotropic drug. And I had a very severe reaction to Halidol. I felt like I had bugs crawling all over me. I was like, oh my goodness. It was the worst. So I already felt sick. And then I took the Halidol and this was happening. And I was like, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm now in pan full panic mode because I'm just like, I feel like crap something's not right. Like, I'm just like, I can't lift my head up. Like, and my husband goes, okay, we're going to the, we're going to the emergency room. He goes, I don't, I can't. He goes, you clearly, like I was crying. Like I was in a mess. He goes, yeah. do you want me to call the ambulance? I go, no, 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 no. Well, we can just go there. I go, okay. So he gets me, we go there. I don't really remember this part very well. So we're in the ER, they admit me because obviously a cancer patient, they're like, we got to figure what's going on. So we get up into the room and I'm laying there and my husband goes, smile at me. And I smile and he goes, huh. And he leaves the room. He doesn't say anything. Mm -hmm. He's the room. He comes back with, uh, I think a nurse or a doctor or both. I can't remember it really. And he tells me to smile again. So I smile again. Clearly something wasn't right. Then, so they call the stroke team, which is in a different building. So the stroke team comes as fast as they could. And they're like, you're having a stroke. The room crashes with all these people. Mind you, I don't remember any of this. This is my husband told me. Crashes with all, like every nurse they've got, the, the stroke team, like everybody, like 20 people. My husband gets ushered out of the room and they are just like full-blown, like we need to do what we need to do. So mind you, I wake up, the next thing I remember is they're putting electrodes all over my little bald head. And I'm like, kind of like in la la land, I'm not really like feeling anything. I'm like, okay. And they're like, if you feel something, press this red button next time. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. If I feel something, I'll press this red button, no big deal. So they leave. I don't know how much time elapses, but all of a sudden I start shaking. And I just immediately turned to my husband. I go, press the button, press the button. Meanwhile, I didn't know it at the time, but I was having a stroke and seizures. Mm. And so they crashed the room again. <laughs> this time they sent me to the ICU. They put me in a medically induced coma. My husband says I was in there for three days in a medically induced coma. The priest kept coming by because they didn't know. Didn't oh know. My goodness. Um, and the next thing I remember is waking up going, my, my dad was in the room, my dad's girlfriend, Kate was in the room and my husband. And I just remember going, I, ha I, I, ha I go, I have to pee. 
and I, well, first I had a tube down my throat and they got that out. And then I just remember going, I have to pee. And they looked at me and they're like, it's okay. You're, you've got a ostomy bag on. You're fine. Just go pee. And I was like, no, I'm, I go, okay. So I did it. And then I go, I go, I'm wet. I'm like, I no, I'm not, this is not okay. And they're like, it's for some reason it didn't work. So I had just urinated on myself and they're like, okay, like what is happening? So they took that out, which was super painful. And the catheter. Then, yeah. Catheter. Um, and then I work. did, yeah, I, for whatever reason it was, did not work. And then the next thing I remember is waking up in the ICU, not being able to use my left, my entire left side face, everything dead. It was like, I couldn't sit up because I couldn't, I had no balance. Uh, my entire left side was just like, nothing was happening. And they wouldn't tell my husband, like what, like how, if I would get my usage back, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say anything. So my actual doctor that was treating me at the time comes into the ICU, which is really unheard of that I, I found out. Doctors don't typically go visit their patients in the ICU if something happens. And she was just like, oh my God, you had a stroke. Like, what are we, and you're fighting cancer. Like, what, what are we gonna do with you? And she was just really compassionate. Then I said an in, inappropriate joke about her husband being attractive. <laughs> And then I said something about her whole team being attractive and how awkward it was. And this is my husband telling me back because I don't mm. really remember a lot of this. And they're like, okay. They're like, we're, we're going to take you to a rehab hospital now because we have to figure out if you can walk again, move your arm, anything. Like a mm. cognitive thinking wasn't there. Like I couldn't eat because I couldn't chew properly. Um, I was a mess. I was a mess. From the chemotherapy. Yeah, and the stroke and everything. I was a I was a just a mess. So we get transferred to the rehab hospital. So I was there over Fourth of July weekend. I think I was there for two weeks. And I basically rehabbed myself enough to where I begged them to let me go home. <laughs> Because I just was like, I, I need to get out of this hospital. I need to get out. Like I, we had a roommate, like it's, I can't, I can't be here. And, and what was your, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. What was your uh, cognitive and physical ability like at that point when you wanted to leave? So when I first got there, it felt like watching a movie. Like you're just like, kind of like out of it. You're dazed, you're dazed. Um, like you, when you just get out of bed and you're like, kind of like just on autopilot, you know, my husband had to literally put socks on me, shower me, bathe me, wipe me, go to the bathroom. Like I couldn't do anything by myself. Mm. Like it was the most humbling experience I think I've ever had in my life. And may I ask you about that? Yeah. Because like, you know, put your socks on you, shower you, bathe you. Then you said, wipe me. It's like, mm -hmm. this is, in our culture, this is something that we keep very private. Even the closest of people keep that kind of thing private. And like, you know, I've, I provided my father that care when he was, you know, getting towards the end of his life. But 
to receive it. Like that's a difficult thing. Like when I uh, was getting radiation, there was a day I didn't get to the bathroom in time. And I'd just gotten out of bed, you know, so I didn't have a lot of clothes on. And I, you know, my bowels are pretty much water from the radiation. And I just pooped all over the floor. Yeah. I couldn't get the door open. And so I was married at the time, and my wife comes and starts to help me clean it up. And I'm like, no, 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 please, like, please let me do this. And she was like, in her mind, she's like, there's no way I'm not going to help you with this. Right. And in my mind, I'm so enveloped in shame. Even if no one was there, I was feeling it. And she's there with me. And it was, it was a, there was a vulnerability. There was a sharing of that experience that I did not want to have happen. Right. I want to keep that to myself. And... I'm just curious if you're willing to speak about it, you know, what that was like for you. Um, you know, he gave, like, so when I was first diagnosed, I gave my husband an out, and I was like, you did not sign up for this. He goes, no, a minute, a minute to win. And I go, okay. When I had a stroke, I said, you did not sign up for this. You don't have to be here. It's not your responsibility. He goes, no, here. Hmm. I couldn't I wasn't comfortable enough with letting a stranger wipe my butt but for some reason there was like this I don't know comfort is the right word but just level of vulnerability that I, I just knew like I don't know you wouldn't judge I don't know. And that's so weird that that's what we think about, but I couldn't let the nurse do it. I would only let him. And I think it's because it's such an intimate act that nobody ever really should see or do with another person that, that, you know, and he jokes and he says like, oh, well, I just did this 30 years earlier than when I expected to do it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which there's some truth to that. You know, we don't always know what we're going to end up doing, but um, there's a level of compassion with my husband that is unlike anybody I've ever met and there's no judgment for it. We can joke about it, but there's no judgment about it if that makes sense. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. I so appreciating I so appreciate you answering the question and answering it the way that you did and including that you just wouldn't let the nurse wipe you. And there was something sounds like there was something safe about having your husband do it. Yeah. And it sounds like he got one heck of a husband. Who is, you know, and you, and you sound pretty incredible. I'm, I'm really inspired by you saying to him, like, look, you didn't sign up for this. Yeah, he didn't. You gave him, you gave him the out mm -hmm. twice. And each yeah. time he's like, no, I'm kidding me. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. He did joke around and say, I'm in too deep now. I'm not leaving. But <laughs> I knew what he meant. Yeah. 
with my colostomy that I have as a result of the first surgery from the first diagnosis, mm-hmm. like only a handful of people have ever seen the stoma. The stoma is where the large intestine exits my abdomen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So outside of medical people, my former wife, my kid, two friends who visited me in the hospital after the surgery because there was a clear pouch on my abdomen. Mm-hmm. Like it's something that I don't, people have asked to see it. I'm like, no, it's like, it's basically my asshole coming out of my abdomen. Like, I don't want you to see it. It's, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> not giving you a front row seat to my asshole. That's yeah. just not going to happen. And people, you know, they ask because they're, they're genuinely curious about how the body is, you know, replumbed. Yeah. And how it works. And how it works and what it looks like. And, you know, for anyone listening, it's a, the, you know, the inside of your large, you know, large intestine comes out my abdomen. And then it's kind of like they roll, if you roll your sock over or roll your pant cuff up after you put your pants on, mm-hmm. they, ro- they fold it over and then stitch it to the skin. Yeah. And, and it's red. It's bright red, like open your mouth. That's what it, that's the color, you know? And, uh, cause it is interesting, but yeah, it's very personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like, uh. Like I said, it sounds like you got a great husband. I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. That was probably one of the most humbling moments I've ever had still to this day. And when you say humbling, I get in part because of the intimate care required, but was it was it also humbling when you weren't able to move your own body? I mean, holy cow. Right. And realizing like how, what we take for granted, just being able to sit up on your own, being able to balance, being able to walk, being able to stand, like all the little things that just we do without even like our, we don't think about to do. We just do. We just go. I need to go from here to there. Our brain just gets us there. Our body moves. But when you can't move half your body, you've got dead weight, literally. You're just like, all right, how am I going to do this? You have to like literally logistically think about how you're going to sit up because you can't balance on the left side. You only have your right. So do you have something you can grab onto and then kind of wiggle your way over and then kind of throw yourself up? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's like playing Tetris with yourself. Mapping out all the movements. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so humbling. It's everything we take for granted for every single day. You have to, I had to think about from the moment I opened my eyes to, I have to use the restroom. This is going to take 20 freaking chest moves just to get over there. And then I also have to ask for help. I'm also curious how long it's been, if you'd include that in your response as well. Yeah. So I had my stroke in June of 2014, end of June, 2014, and only I can notice the discrepancies from right to left. There's a significant strength difference between the two. And I mean, partially I, I am right hand dominant, so that's not helping my cause, but um, my left hand has still struggles with acute mu- movements. So like really finite things that need to be done that my right hand can just do, like my left hand cannot. Mm. It just can't perform mm-hmm. those functions. Such as? Like, let's say I'm holding a pen in my right hand. My left hand, it's, it doesn't, like, want to cooperate at all. Mm, okay. 
it's it's really weird like you know how like even if you're right hand dominant your left hand can still scribble your name a little bit mine can't at all you get the okay. performing things like that that require a lot of like finesse i guess you could say for lack yeah, of like better if, word. if i needed to write my name with my left hand it wouldn't look great but i could do it like you're saying like no like it's not gonna happen uh-uh. okay and but i mean it took so i was in the rehab hospital for two weeks then I went to outpatient for eight weeks straight of three hours a day, every day, five days a week, working on everything, cognitive thought process, uh, just like movement um, of the upper body and lower body and trying to get it as, as far as they could with the time that they had. And while undergoing chemo, because I still hadn't hit remission and I still, my cans were so aggressive, they didn't want to pause. So talk about, I don't, I still to this day have no clue how I got through it. It was just like head down, all the noise got pushed to the back burner and it was just like three hours of focus on this. Then we'll go get chemo if if we need to on that day. And then that was like, that was my schedule. Okay. So your chemo treatment didn't stop while you're dealing with a stroke. No. Mm, I recently joined some cancer support groups on Facebook. For years, I wasn't able to be on them because it's just, the emotion is just too strong. I get devastated by what people are dealing with. Yeah. Over time and working with enough clients, what I've come to accept is like, what that actually represents is it's me being attached to the outcome of their diagnosis. Mm. Me wanting to fix it. Yeah. Versus like, at this point in my life, now what I've let in is that there are heartbreaking, devastating diagnoses being given to people on a daily basis. Like that is part of human existence. Mm-hmm. We may not like it, but it's, I want to say this delicately, it's like it's currently what it's like being a human on earth right now. It's not, you know, would we like to change that? A hundred percent. But is it just simply what's so right now? Yeah. You were getting stroke rehab, like hoping to regain your cognitive ability, hoping to regain your physical ability. Oh, and still going in and getting more chemotherapy, which is what caused the stroke to begin with. Yeah? Yep. Yeah. Were you able to... Was there any space in your brain to navigate that, what's the words I'm looking for, that conundrum, that, that the, the, there's a, there's an, what I'm imagining is this experience of like these, these contradictory commitments. Like I'm, I don't want any more of this treatment because I, I just had a stroke from it. And yet I want the treatment because I want to stay alive. Were you able to even get your head around that as you were developing your cognitive ability and bringing it back? Or were you simply, had you just simply given yourself over to this treatment or was it a different answer? Um, (laughs) I think it was, it was honestly like all of that at once. Like I think it was so overwhelming to me at that time that you just go on autopilot, you know, when you just like, something inside my head just said, 
Well, first thought was in the hospital before I got out, I just said, if I can tie my shoe, I think I'll be able to figure this out. Cause do you know how much like ability it takes to tie your shoe? Like it's incredible what, what needs to happen. I was like, if I can just do that, I think I'll be fine. I'll just, and I focus so hard on that. You're, you get tunnel vision almost. So you're like, yeah, I'm getting chemo. I'm doing this, but I need to do this and I will get there. So for some reason, my brain's really good at when, when crisis happens and trauma happens, my brain is really good at compartmentalizing and hyper-focusing on the one thing. And that one thing at that moment was tying my shoe and just grinning and bearing the rest of it. And it taught me that your, our bodies, our bodies are so resilient and so incredible what they can do and to keep pushing and keep fighting for even like the smallest baby step of growth. Even if you feel like you're not moving that needle, it's moving. You just don't see it because you're you. People outside of it see it. Just you can't, you're inside yourself. You can't see it. Yeah, it sounds like. Sounds like you're in survival mode. And you had one goal. Those two things kept you moving through a program that mm -hmm. one could say doesn't even make sense. Yeah. I mean, it's it like I still to this day look back and go, wow, that was a lot. Like it, I, it to me, it doesn't feel like a lot. But when I tell people and see their reactions, that's when I go, that was a lot. OK, that's not normal. What happened in the 10 months prior to my second diagnosis in my life was so much. You know, I would see people's faces when I tell them what's going on with me. And, you know, or when I tell people now, you get reminded, you're like, oh, yeah, right. Like I have, I'm, I've normalized it. It's just part of my life. But that ain't normal. I, know. I mean, maybe it is, but it's only normal for people, for people who are, <laughs> aware of such things who've been through such things mm -hmm. it, 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 I have a lot of emotion a lot of physical response as you're telling me what you had to navigate yeah it's phenomenal and what I'm hearing you say is it was just time after time it was just one more thing that just came in like a freight train mm -hmm. and you had to move through that yeah it was literally just one foot in front of the other, head down and focused. All the noise went away. I don't. I couldn't tell you what was going on in the news or what was happening in the world at that time at all. I'm imagining you know climbing a mountain, and the snow is coming down and you can't see, and all there is to do, is just take the next step, and notice where the trail is, and keep going forward. And there's nothing else to pay attention to, right? Because you've got to get to that destination. So how long was it before you had nearly full use of your body? So at the end of that eight weeks, it was pretty, um, pretty functional, to be honest. Um, but it also showed wow. me that I, yeah, I mean, I, it was intense. It was, they, they, the rehab, uh, outpatient facility that I went to did not let me They did not waste the time that we had together. Let's just put it that way. They pushed. They pushed hard. 
because they knew the faster and that we could connect those motor neurons, the better I would be in the long run. And so for them to keep pushing was the right call, even though I was physically, emotionally, mentally just exhausted. But I knew that they had my best interests. They wouldn't have pushed me that hard if, if, if they didn't think that it was necessary. And I think that really helped me see like, okay, you know, they, they, they work with you. What are your goals? What do you want to do? I said, I want to be able to obviously be independent, but I wanted to be able to do yoga again. I wanted to be able to go back into, you know, doing things on my own. So my husband wouldn't think like I was going to hurt myself. Like I wanted to be able to use a knife again because my husband was like, you can't use knife. <laughs> that was a big thing. He goes, because I couldn't use my other hand as leverage to cut anything. And so I'd be like one hand cutting. He's like, no, 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 you're going to freaking cut off my finger. Like this is not happening. <laughs> so I wanted, I wanted that independence. And so we worked on those things specifically like chopping vegetables and walking and <laughs> gait and um, strength and thing like in yoga as part of it. And they pushed me and showed me that if I keep working and keep pushing, that it will be as good as I push it. It will start to get better. And I think maybe I believed that it would get better too, which helped. And I'm very lucky. This is not always the case. I've talked to other stroke survivors who have had similar, I've met this man through the internet who had the same thing, stroke from chemo, um, the IT chemo infusion, pegasparaginase. And he said, he still has trouble walking. So I'm very lucky and very grateful yeah. for the function that I have. And yeah, I, there's discrepancies, but I still have full function. And it, at the end of the week, the eight weeks, yeah. I mean, I was, I was struggling with typing. That was like the big thing, typing. But as far as like walking and I looked normal, I looked healthy. I looked, not, well, I didn't look healthy, but I looked like I didn't, I didn't look like I had a stroke. And the cognitive ability did that come back in line with the uh physical ability as well yeah Same timeline. It, about that um the cognitive ability still is a struggle for me because of the chemo brain but for the most part it came back i think mm -hmm. as well as it expected there will i i don't notice anything other than chemo brain really i can't remember shit yeah i you know i think that chemo uh had lasting impact on my memory you know i i used to say it took x number of weeks before the chemo brain was gone or it took x number of weeks after surgery until the anesthesia wore off and then it struck mm -hmm. me rather in a humbling way when it dawned on me that perhaps after that amount of time i felt normal but it wasn't actually a return you know my memory's not good i uh people tell me you already told me that or you know, you're, and I get I, that a lot. And, and now I'm just like, you know, there, there's the, the ego, you know, wants to say, you know, no, I didn't, or in, feels insulted because a person said that. Versus like, you know, what I'm, what I've been growing into and softening to is like, yeah, you probably did, you probably did. And then with certain folks in my life, I'd be like, hey, so would you be willing to not point it out if I've told you three times in one week? Because like, I know I probably have, but. And it's habitual, I get you're not doing it for any reason. You're just like, oh, you already told me that. But it's like, I'd love to not know. I told you the same thing three times in a week. 
right? Because I don't remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd like to believe that, uh, <laughs> maybe not be reminded of it so much because it's, it's not helping me. And, you know, right. everyone who said that is like, oh, of course, like, my intention right. is not to knock you down. And, you know, there's also there an opportunity for me to grow, right? For me to, to not be insulted by it, to get like, that's just humans being human. And what they're saying is, is you already said that three times. And so what? Yeah. You know, it can go either go. way. Yeah. I just go, my brain's broken. What do you want me to do? <laughs> my brain's broken. I mean, I think I'm going to take that with me. I think I'm going to take that with me from this podcast of the many things. Yeah. My brain is broken. What do you want me to do? Yeah, it's like, so here's what I'm noticing right now. Thank you so much, Casey. I'm noticing that I've been taking responsibility mm. for my lack of memory. And that's been really impacting my relationships with others and my experience of life. And the truth is that I don't have any say. You my, can't pick and choose when it works and when it doesn't. Like, it's like... I was given I always, medication that's destructive right? to save my I life. I always say it's like always having Google search on in your head. You know, the words are there somewhere. Your brain just can't Google search them fast enough. My bandwidth has been reduced. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. And you really rebounded well from the stroke. My goodness. Yeah. Did chemotherapy go for two years as they anticipated it may? Yeah, so I went back to work way too early, whole different discussion, but you know, I just wanted to feel normal. I wanted something that wasn't killing me and, you know, changing the course of my life again. I just wanted normal. And so I just went back to work. Wasn't in remission yet, just went. And they were, everyone was like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I need this. I needed something to hold on to is mm -hmm. what I needed. I needed like stability. And then shortly after I went back to work, I did get into remission and finished the protocol. Seven weeks after I finished the protocol, my cancer returned. So you finished the two-year protocol and seven weeks later, the cancer returned. Yep. And how did you know? Was it a scan or was it symptoms? So I think... In my gut, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't want to admit it. I didn't want to mm -hmm. say something was wrong. So one weekend we had gone to Michigan to visit friends that lived there and we were staying at their house. And one of the signs and symptoms is night sweats. And I night sweated like hard for two days. And I was like, no, that's weird. It's not right. Went, came back home, same thing every night, night sweats. There wasn't bruising yet. There wasn't petechiae, but just night sweats. Finally. I was looking down like after work one day at my foot, there's little red dots, but there's not a lot. There's just a few. And I kept looking at it and I'm like, did something bite me? Like I, I, I'm like, my husband's traveling for work. I'm like sitting there trying to like, you know, yoga my foot up to my head, like <laughs> trying to figure it out. I'm taking pictures with my phone. Like, I'm like, I, what is this? Is this a bite? Like a, like it did something bite me? Like what is going on? And I send a picture to my husband who's in traveling like to California or something at the time. I think he was. And I go, do you think this is petechiae? And he texts me back. He actually calls me, doesn't text me. I don't think. And he goes, he goes, no, it's fine. You're fine. He goes, it's not a big deal. He goes, 
I think I'm going to come home tomorrow, which was like a day earlier than what he was supposed to. And I was like, why? And he was like, well, he's like, I, he's like, my meeting's over. I'm, I'm just going to come up. Takes the red eye home. He goes, I think you should go get blood work tomorrow. And he's like, we just need to make sure. And I was like, all right. It's like a Wednesday or something. So I go, I go to the lab, drop my blood off. Two hours later, they call me, which I've never had labs come back that quickly, by the way, because I actually had to request the blood work done. So they knew to be looking out for them, but I still had never gotten lab work that quickly back. And my husband's like, I'm just going to go work from the hotel that's next to your office. And he's like, I'm just going to be there. He goes, I not a big deal and I'm like this is weird why would you do that why would you come home and then go work next door like what is what are you doing and sure enough two hours later I get the phone call she she tells me over the phone she goes it's back your cancer's back and I was like what I'm at work in my freaking cubicle going are you sure she goes yeah you need to come into the hospital now like right now so I I go I go okay she goes hang up and leave and I go, okay. So I go into my boss's office and I shut the door and I just pile, just drop to the floor and go, it's back. My cancer's back. And she immediately goes, where's Anthony? I go, for some reason, he's next door working. And he goes, she goes, okay. She, she gives me a minute and she picks me up off the floor. She goes, she goes, it's okay. It's going to be fine. She goes, just leave your stuff. And I'm like trying to like pack up my stuff, like work. Like I'm trying to bring work home. Right, right, right. Yep. And she goes, no, just leave it. Shuttles me out of the office midday, like 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And Anthony pulls up. I get in the car. He, he goes, he goes, it's back, isn't it? He goes, he goes, I knew it. He goes, I just didn't want to tell you goes because you didn't think that it was that yeah so get admitted to the hospital and you know they confirm it with a bone marrow biopsy um and they were like well we don't think you're responding to the chemotherapy anymore we have we have this option called blended tumor map or we can put you on the clinical trial that's going on right now at northwestern Will you say that again? A trial called blend. No, the immunotherapy called blindatumumab was the first option. Okay, so it's not a word I would know. You said blindatumumab. It's just a yeah. It's the immunotherapy drug, or go on to the clinical trial that Northwestern was doing at the time. And I was like, well, you know, we we're kind of like back and forth, and I was like, well, if we do the immunotherapy, will it um, affect my ability to get on the clinical trial if per se it doesn't work? And she was like, no. And she goes, the immunotherapy is supposed to be a lot less aggressive. It's, you know, she goes, we can try it. And then if it doesn't work, we still have the clinical trial as backup. I was like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's what we did. Path forward, right? So map is like, you get a fanny pack. It's a 24 hour infusion um, I think for three days straight and then you come back, they change it out and it's like a pump. So I was like, all right, cool. I have this really awkward fanny pack now that I carry around. Awesome. Yep. I had one of those. <laughs> so I was only in the hospital for like a few days and then I got home. So I was like, okay, at least I'm at home. Right. 
the first day home, I was like tired, but I just figured it was because I just got out of the hospital and, you know, I'm sick again. So they're giving me all these drugs. Didn't think about it. The next day I was like, I literally couldn't make it up the stairs to go into our bedroom. Couldn't make it. Uh, my husband had to help me up the stairs. And then he was like, you want to shower? And I was like, yeah, but I can't, I can't stand up long enough to do it. He goes, what do you mean? I looked at him. I go, I can't, I don't have the energy. I can't do it. Like I physically couldn't do it. He goes, okay. He goes, I'll go get a chair. We'll put it in the shower and you can shower. I go, I can't do it. So he had to help me shower. And meanwhile, this fanny pack sitting outside the door <laughs> and he goes, this isn't right. Something's not right. You know, and they always tell you if you start, if you have a fever over 102 to contact them immediately. So we always checked my temperature for like the last two years. So he checked my temperature. He goes, oh, it's 103. We, we need to go back. So go back to the hospital. This is where I don't remember any of it. Uh, my husband told me that for three days straight, I was spiking 105 degree fever. Whoa. That they couldn't get down. They, were, they had me laying on an ice blanket. They had me, they covered me in ice. Like these wonderful nurses on the oncology floor who are not equipped to handle this were freaking out. And I couldn't figure out why in my head. Cause I was like, cause I, it, to me, it felt like hours. It didn't feel like days. And I just kept going. I'm freezing. Can we just stop with the ice already? My husband kept, just kept going for literally three days straight, five more minutes, five more minutes. And I was like, this is the longest five minutes ever. That's all I kept saying. Because I had no sense of time, nothing. It's completely out of it. So finally, one day, the, the, head, just the, the charge nurse comes in. She's the head of the, all the nurses on the floor. She goes, we're going to take you to the ICU. We are not equipped to handle this. We can't get your fever down. They can monitor you closely. And I knew what the ICU was like. I was like, no, I'm not going. Mm-hmm. I flat out told them I go I'm not going I don't want to go and they're like you have to go you don't have a choice so then ICU nurse comes in who is like the, or doctor or nurse I can't remember she comes in and she starts talking to me and I go I promise I'll break the fever I'm like just I don't want to go like I was begging her she goes okay well, we'll wait a few hours I have no idea why she agreed to this by the way <laughs> finally for some reason my fever did break I was fine So what happens is in immunotherapy, if your body starts to reject the immunotherapy, it creates a cytokine release storm in your body, which is what I had been experiencing. A cytokine release release storm. storm. It's basically like the simplest way I could explain it is your body's rejecting what's happening and it's freaking out. It literally just freaks out. Wow. Yeah. I'm just going to pause for a moment and say, and you're still here, like this body that you were born with, it is a rock star. Wow. And you're not done sharing your experience yet. (laughs) No, we're not. So obviously that got stopped. (laughs) So that treatment ended. Mm -hmm. Not a match for you. They move you to clinical trial, yeah? Yeah, so they're like, okay, great. We have the clinical trial still at our disposal. Perfect. We'll start you for that. Now, if you've never been on a clinical trial, they test you for everything. Like, I'm not joking, everything. Like, every test you can possibly imagine, they do. So it's quite 
extensive and it takes a long time to get through all of these tests, pulmonary, um, like just eye tests, like everything, because they need a baseline to start. So they need to know like, these are the signs and symptoms now, anything that changes along the way. So, I mean, you literally get, I had like a three hour CAT scan. Like it's insane the amount of things that you get tested for. So I'm just in the hospital. So I'm like waiting. And finally, this trial was where they would harvest your own stem cells and then put them back into you after they do some stuff to it, after they take them out. And then they put them back in. I was like, okay. So I get to the part where they're taking my, harvesting my stem cells and we're doing it, all the things. My husband's like watching this clinical trial happen. And he comes from a medical background. He worked in some uh, long-term care facilities. So his medical acumen is a lot better than mine. And he start, he goes, there's a board meeting coming up. He goes, I'm gonna sit in on the board meeting, but it was like a week away. Meanwhile, like there's a lot of people all of a sudden, like family members, all wearing the same shirts in the like family room for lack of a better word. And it's where I would go in and do my like 20 minutes of bicycle cycling because that's all we had in the facility. And I was like, wow, they're like here for like three days, right? What is happening? A couple of days later, they cancel the clinical trial because two people on the floor that previous week with all the families had died from the clinical trial. So they shut it down. So I was like, well, what happens now? What do we do? They're like, well, there's a clinical trial going on in another hospital. They're like, but it's full right now. And I was like, all right, so that means I can't do it. Like I was very confused at this process, still am. Yeah. So they're basically like, you're on the waiting list. They, they can't hand you guys the notes. Right. They can't <laughs> the, give the it binder. to you. <laughs> they can do it themselves. Yeah. They, there's a lot of like things, I guess, like a lot of uh, bureaucratic things that go on with these clinical trials that you can't just hop on them. You can't just. Like, it's very, I don't know what the word is. Uh, it's not up to the medical team necessarily. Yeah. I know nothing about these things and what little bit of nothing that I do know, I would imagine they're given approval to do X number of cases in such and such a way. Mm-hmm. And you don't just get to bring more people in. They're like, no, we're not letting you do this with more people until we have reason to believe that it's going to be in their best interest. Right. And that leaves a person like you who's like, I don't have any other options right now. Can I sign a waiver? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Is that like what was going on in your head? Well, I just was like, all right, what does that mean? Like, so what, there's nothing else. I was like, there's nothing else we can do. Basically, at that point, they were just keeping me alive, giving me platelets, giving me blood, trying to make sure that I would just not die in the meantime. And they're like, we're trying to get you on the trial. We're, we're, you know, I don't know what that meant at the time. Like, I still don't. Um, We're just waiting. We're waiting. And I was like, okay, well, can I go home? And they're like, no, you can't go home. I was like, what do you mean I can't go home? Like, you're just sitting here. Like, I'm. They're like, we don't, we don't, we don't feel comfortable with you going home because you're getting so many platelets and blood work, and like, we need to watch you. And I was like, all right, fine. Meanwhile, we're running up on like. 60 something days in the hospital. Like, I, I, you're killing me here. Like, I have no, no foresight into when I'm getting out of here. And I'm in limbo land is basically what happened. And so they were like, well, 
last ditch effort, let's try the FLAG protocol, which is a really intense five-day chemotherapy protocol. Um, and I can't remember the exact, exact drugs that it are that it is, I'm sorry, um, but each one, F-L-A-G are the drugs that they give you. And I was like, all right, I really was like, this isn't gonna work. So they give it to me, obviously it doesn't work. <laughs> so it just makes me really sick, <laughs> shocker. So I'm like, what's next? We knew that wasn't gonna work. It was a moonshot, like, what are we doing? So the rounding doctor at the time goes, there's something we can try, but we don't necessarily have access to it. I was like, well, what does that mean? He hands my husband a piece of paper that's one page. And he goes, there's this drug called isotunumab that isn't for your refractory leukemia, but it might be worth trying. And I was like, there's a lot of ifs in that statement. Mm. A lot of, lot of things going on. And he goes, but it's not accessible yet. And I was like, well, what do you mean? So you're offering me hope with, not ex with a drug that's not accessible. What do you mean? He goes, well, one of the pioneering people that was part of this drug trial was is the doctor I still have now, Dr. Frankfurt. And she, this was meant for refractory AML patients, acute myeloid leukemias, which is a completely different leukemia. And she comes in, the first time we met her was in the hospital and she was like, we're just gonna try it. We're gonna see if we can get it for you and try it. And I go, well, what does that entail? Cause I wanna get out of this freaking hospital, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and she goes, well, we have to write a letter of compassion to the drug manufacturer. And then we have to write a letter of compassion to the FDA for approval to even use it. Without those two letters of approval, we can't give you the drug and we don't have access to it. And I was like, all right, well, how long does this take? And do I have to be here for that? <laughs> they were like, no, we don't have to be here for that. We're gonna, we're gonna figure out how to get you out of here. And in the meantime, we'll, we're gonna write the letters. I was like, great, awesome. At least I'm getting out of here. So I go home after 68 days in the hospital <laughs> with two letters written and they're like kind of like we're going to monitor you and just basically keep you alive in the meantime because the goal was to get to stem cell transplant but I hadn't gotten into remission to get to stem cell transplant at that point so I go home and it's like it's mid-December at that time so I'm like it's like watching a movie I'm going through the motions of life but I'm not really experiencing it and in the back of my mind was like probably the last Christmas I'll have probably the last everything the funny thing is when you're faced with that what we think we are going to do is the exact opposite you know everyone's like why didn't you go on vacation and do all these things I was like because I planned my funeral and made sure I cleaned out my closet so my husband wouldn't have to if I died that's what I did and I went to the gym every day because I didn't have access to it for the last 60 something days. And I went to the movies with my friends. And I made sure 
to tell everyone around me that I love them. And I had the hardest conversation I think I've ever had in my life with my dad. And I looked at him one day sitting on the couch and I go, you know, I might not be here. And he looks at me, he goes, I know. He goes, we don't all make it to the end. And in that moment, I just remember being really mad with him for saying that. Because I wanted him to say, like, you're going to make it. You're going to be okay. Want him to hug me. Want him to hold me. But in looking back, he was trying to deal with it and process it too. Yeah. And now, like, it's one of my favorite sayings. Because if you think about that sentence, sometimes we don't all make it to the end. But if we get to the end, that, that's it. So we have, whether it's when we're in 30 or 70 or 90, the end is our end. And, you know, that's, that's the reality of when you're faced with life and death is you don't go off on some holiday. You are there with your people. Can hear that you were like, if these are my final days, I'm gonna spend it with people that I love. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna go away to go experience something. I want to be with my people. Yeah. And I admire your father's. You know, I'm not gonna put a word to it. I'm gonna say I admire your father because he didn't try to soften the blow like it's really moving (sighs) he chose to be there with you and to say yeah you might not he sat in the uncomfortableness with me yeah and and what I have found and this is through the spiritual teachers that I sit with that I do retreat with they've led me to step into some of the profoundly uncomfortable parts of life and to just sit with them and not try to make them go away, to actually be with all of it. And I found that the hardest part about that process is not being with the devastating heartbreak It's resisting being with that devastating heartbreak. And when you just let it in, when I have those moments when I let it in and I don't resist, it's far, I don't know what are the words for it. Uh, In this moment, all I can say is that the resistance is far more difficult than the pain of being with what's so. I also acknowledge that you were able to get your head around what your dad was saying to you. Yeah. You're able to appreciate that, and it's definitely uh, impacted your life and how you live. Yeah. I think, granted, in that moment, I wanted to hear something different, but I think that if he would have done anything differently, it would have 
it would have not been real. Like he was trying to process it just as I was. This man for the last two years showed up at my house every day to sit with me in some form or fashion until I went back to work. But even in the hospital, every day. 60 something, eight, 68 days he was there with me. Every day. He didn't miss. The time in the rehab hospital, every day. The time before that in the hospital, every day. Yeah. He was processing it just as I was. The reality. And I don't believe there's a right answer. I believe that you know, your father knew his daughter. He knew you. And so the answer that arose was like, yeah, Casey, like we don't all make it to the end. Like softening it would not have served you. And he was inviting you to go into the grief and the heartbreak of what's so for what it provides, which is just access to Access to what? Access to a life that's genuine. Yeah. I think what scares a lot of people is death. And cancer brings that to the forefront of our reality. And, you know, if I think in a, his way, he was saying, like, if it's your time, it's your time. Like, it's okay. It, it, what he did is he, he in, sounds like he invited you to join him in dissolving the illusion that death is not a part of life. Right. Those are the words that I'm looking for. When I realized in my first diagnosis that I might die, there was a, I mean, you mentioned very early on, you know, how. you were taking a shower and a clump of your hair came out and you dropped to your knees and it all hit you. Mm -hmm. The day I was diagnosed the first time, it was a very mechanical, emotionless conversation with the doctor, with my wife, with the family on the conference calls. And then the next day we woke up, I opened my eyes, I'm like, Oh, shit, I have cancer. And we get moving around. She says, you know, she asks, do you want me to stay home with you today? I'm like, no, 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 go to work. She leaves. I walk around the house. I sit on the couch. I'm laying on the couch. And I'm sobbing, screaming at the ceiling like I'm not one of these people. I'm not someone that gets cancer. Like, what is happening to me? I'm I'm a healthy person. I'm a normal. You know, this illusion that 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 somehow you're you have to be sick or something or have your body not working to get cancer. No, not at all. And about a month later, it struck me. I said, "Oh my gosh, okay, I might die." Like, that's not really relevant at this point and I'll explain like you know not that I'm not going to do everything I can to live but like avoiding death 
stopped being, how do I say this? Avoiding the grief of the possibility of death stopped being a priority to me. Yes, I continued to do everything I could to stay alive, but the grief of the possibility of dying, I stopped resisting it. Yeah. And I was like, I might die. Got it. Mm-hmm. If I need to cry about that, I'm going to cry my eyes out. If I make absurd, inappropriate jokes about it, you either like them or you find somewhere else to spend your time because I'm navigating the possibility that I might die. You know, your dad opened that door for you. And like the love that I feel just saying that, so moved by that, that he just invited you to sit there with him. Like, yeah, you might, sweetheart. It takes away the illusion that we're guaranteed things in this life. Like living a long life. We're not. You're not. We're not. You know, it, it's still to this day, I joke, I half-heartedly joke because to some degree it's a reality. I tell my husband all the time, I go, if I get another good 20 years, I'm fucking happy. Because if I get sick again, chemo's out. What am I going to do? Is that right? Yeah. My body's chemo resistant. It does not respond. I go, the reality of what I'm facing, if I get 20 good years, I'll be happy. Yeah. He goes, 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 you're going to live so much longer. I go, no. I go, my body's been through a lot. I go, once you get cancer once, you're more susceptible already. Not that I believe in percentages or anything like that, but you're not you're already in a more susceptible position because of it, because of all the drugs that save us in the moment end up coming back to hurt us. And I can't use chemo. I go, my options are very limited. I go, let's just be real with this. He goes, yeah, well, I don't want to. I go, I understand you don't, but Hmm. I'm living my life with the reality of if I get 20 good years, I'm happy. I'm with you there. I'm with you there. I was getting chemo when my son was a year old, a year and a half. Wow. I was diagnosed when he was four months old, the first time I was diagnosed. Wow. Yeah, and much later into my treatment, I'm getting the chemo, and I think to myself, I looked at my buddy, and I said, he's giving me a ride. My wife didn't want to. I didn't want my wife and I did not want her, you know, with the baby back and forth every day, you know, tests and chemo. It was a 45 minute ride to the hospital we were going to. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to, I di- wasn't working with the local hospital, I was working with a different one. I looked to my buddy, I said, I just want to see my kid graduate from high school. Yeah. You know, I'd love to see that. I want, I want him to remember me. I want to have some experience. I mean, what's it going to matter once I'm gone? I don't know, but that's what I want, you know? And then I had the recurrence. Uh, first diagnosis 2007 in March second diagnosis 2011 in September I knew I would never get cancer again so when I got diagnosed a second time I was just like well I'm going to die like, I have stage 4 metastatic cancer to my liver like I'm going to die and I didn't and I'm still here and now I am having odd discomfort in my uh, bottom of my pelvis mm. and uh, my left testicle is tender and sore 
So tomorrow I'm getting an ultrasound. And there was a moment when I was driving down to see my surgeon before the ultrasound was prescribed to me or scheduled. And I started thinking about, yeah, I'm going to do this podcast if I'm going through chemo and if I have to have surgery. The podcast isn't going to stop. Mm-hmm. And a few minutes later, I'm like, look at that thought. Yeah. Like, I'm not pretending that the like 15 months of chemotherapy that I've done has not negatively affected my body. Right. Like they say, if I get cancer again, it's not going to be a recurrence. It's going to be cancer coming back. And I'm aware of the fact that all the chemotherapy that's gone into my body can cause cancer. (laughs) Isn't that the irony of it all? Yeah. And if someone, and if you're listening to this right now and you know, this isn't, where you're at with it, it doesn't resonate with you. You're choosing to live with cancer behind you. Yes, do exactly that because we each one of us to go our own path. But Casey, I'm on this page you are where I'm like, I don't anticipate living a long life. Hell, I'll dance and celebrate if I do. But I have death in my front pocket present with me all the time. My reasoning is that I don't ever want to go back and living under the illusion that I've got a long time on this planet. Yeah. This life is precious. And I'm still the same jerk I was <laughs> the, before my first diagnosis, but I tend to spend less time in jerkdom and return back to who, I could, who I'm committed to being. It's a, it's a quicker turnaround. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you on that. Yeah. It snaps you back to reality very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. So you're chemo resistant now, but you, the treatment, the something worked. What, what, what did they end up doing? So we ended up after writing two letters, we got approved and they were like, we're just going to start off with uh, four rounds of it. We don't know if it's going to work. They didn't really give us a lot of hope. We're just we're basically like, we're just going to try it. And there wasn't a lot of research. There was one page, 114, I think, participants in it. Uh, not great outcomes if you want to just look at percentages. But they were like, we're going to try it. So tried it the, in mid-January and it worked. I put me into remission after four rounds. And so they immediately, the team was like, well, we got to get you back into the hospital and do the stem cell while we have the opportunity because we don't know how wow. how long this window is going to last. So in fa- at the end of January, beginning of February, I went back into the hospital and they, were, they, prepped, they prep you for stem cell transplant. My brother, thankfully, who's two years older, is a 100% match donor. Mm. And we knew this uh, very early on. So this was uh, always, you know, we were aware. And... My brother goes, gets his stem cell harvest, stem cells harvested at the end of December because we were just like, if this works, we need to be ready. So we get them done. So everything's ready to go. So I get into the hospital. They're like, well, we have to wipe out your entire immune system and everything that's in there. And I was like, it's not already. They're like, no, we have to put you down. <laughs> right? It's not already. Jesus. Um they're like, no, we have to literally put your numbers at like zero. And I was like, all right, well, what do we need to do? They're like, we're giving you total body radiation for a week straight, two times a day. And we're going to give you more chemo 
I go, the chemo's not working. What the hell is the point? And they're like, well, this is what we do for stem cells. So this is just the protocol. I was like, all right, well, let's do it. Holy cow. That was intense, but necessary. Um, and it's, it's a different level of fatigue. It's a different level of exhaustion. Um, like, you know, I had lung plates that were specifically for me to protect my lungs as if the total body radiation would somehow just elusively miss the lungs. Like, <laughs> come on, let's, this illusion of reality is so stupid in my mind, but they give you lung plates. So I have my special lung plates still at Northwestern and, you know, I slept through a lot of the radiation where they, they literally go one side of you, they flip you over like a pancake, do the other side. And I was like, I don't remember a lot of it because I was sleep. I slept through it. That's how exhausted I was. Long they radiate each side of you. Um, I think it was twenty minutes total, so ten minutes aside, twice a day for five days. Mm. And having chemo at the same time, which was awesome. So I don't. Um, I hated radiation. Chemo sucked. Oh, radiation was, was just like it was bad. It's a different level of exhaustion that you can't explain to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I've had surgery exhaustion. People say, I'm going to have surgery and what should I expect? Me to talk about this and that. And I say, your doctor is going to tell you, you have X number of days before you're back on your feet. I said, every doctor I've ever met lowballs it. Mm-hmm. And as you're recovering, when you get tired, there's no coffee to fix it. There's no window to just do one more thing. Your body stops and you stop. There's no there's no pushing along. Your body just the energy just ends because it's meant you're it's currently mending the surgery. But with the radiation <laughs> for me, I mean my radiation does not compare to yours, and I'm gonna ask you about yours. I'm really curious, mm-hmm. but it's just you know what's in my mind is like my radiation, there was no there was no energy ending, there was no beginning. I was just laid out and they rated your whole body. They needed mm-hmm. to, to do a stem cell treatment. They needed to radiate your whole body. Yeah. I guess and, that's not the norm from what I found out afterward. <laughs> but for me, for whatever reason, they were like, we are just being extra cautious or I don't even know. I don't even know at that point. I was just like, whatever, <laughs> like, let's get this over with. Whatever you need to do, let's just do it. Yeah. And what was at the experience that, of it for you? The the team that does the radiation, they are just special people. I can only imagine. They'd have um, to be. You know, they wheel you down into the basement and they, uh, you know, it's like any, you don't feel anything immediately. It's not like you can feel the radiation happening, but it is a different level of exhaustion and depletion that I, chemo, I never experienced with chemo, but this just knocks you on your butt. It is draining in a different way. Like it just, I cannot explain it to somebody who's never experienced it. Like fatigue isn't a word. Like you are just done. Yeah, I just fooled myself into thinking I could relate to you. I don't know if you noticed my eyes shift. I was like, mm-hmm. oh wait, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh my goodness. Did you get radiation burns? I didn't. Usually radiation burns will happen because you're so close to the mechanism that's giving it to you. But this, like, it was across the room. It was very odd. So, like, you know, usually you're in, like, a CT scan-looking thing. But this, 
it's like over on the other wall across a room. So it was probably like five, 10 feet away. And you don't physically feel anything in the moment. You don't, there's no, it doesn't get warm. It doesn't like, there's nothing. And then they just, they turn it off and they come back in and they're like, okay, we'll see you in a few hours. I'm like, all right. First day wasn't so bad, but you know, as anything else, it has a compounding effect. So by the end of the week, I was, I was just done. I was sleeping through it. I didn't know they were flipping me over like a pancake. You did four weeks of radiation. No, one, five days, two times a day. Five days, two times a day, each time doing both sides. And then you're okay. Now you're ready for a stem cell transplant. Yeah. So they wheel in the stem cells and it looks like any, like a cryo container, like a, a fertility preserve, preservation container. That's what it looks like. Um, and they wheel it in and they uh, take the cells and they it looks like, like they're pinkish. Uh, it's like a salmon color hue. And they hook it up like anything else, like any of the other drugs via IV. And they go, okay, we're going to start this. And they mark the time, they mark the clock and they go, so you're going to feel like you can't catch your breath and it's going to feel like you have something in your throat. And I go, okay. They're like, when that happens, let us know. We'll bring you a popsicle. And I was like, all right, this is weird. <laughs> right? Like the popsicle was the, is the like. Uh, a cure all? Like, I, like so it didn't logically funny. make sense. Let us know and we'll bring in a team and a lot of machines that beep and do things for you. No, we're going to bring a popsicle. Right, right. Are you going to bring a kitty? Right. I was like, <laughs> what? I was like, okay. Like, I, you don't question it. You just go, okay, because it doesn't really make sense. No. So she goes, okay, we're doing it. And mind you, when you have a stem cell transplant, it's the worst smell in the entire world it's so distinct smell smell like kind of you mean like like so when i get a uh what do they call it a bolus when they inject mm -hmm. some saline in me i yeah. smell it oh Is yeah that what you're talking about you yeah smell it that way no i mean like the physically like the floor you smell it like anyone who oh so if you're walking around a hospital floor and it's a stem cell transplant floor i know exactly which room's getting a stem cell because the smell is so distinct it smells like rotten cream corn. Rotten cream corn. I don't, I've used cream corn for fishing for carp with my son. I've never experienced it being rotten, but probably can't smell like very good. No, it is so distinct. Like, I'm not kidding you. After that day that I had mine, if I was doing my laps in the, in, on the ward, I would know exactly who was getting a stem cell because it's so distinct. It's a smell I've never smelled anywhere else, still to this day, or before that. So how is the smell of it, how is the scent of it getting into the air if it's in an IV bag and going into your skin, into your body? That's what we couldn't figure out. We have no idea. I didn't ask either, which I should have in hindsight, but that all the nurses made it seem like it was just normal. Like, like it's no big deal. <laughs> And I'm like, you're normalizing in a completely abnormal situation. You know that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So then, of course, I got my popsicle. <laughs> right before it, they hop you up with a bunch of Benadryl. And so I was like fighting to stay awake because Benadryl is like, it's like my NyQuil. It's like, mm -hmm. if, if I get it, I'm out. 
So I'm like fighting to stay awake because I'm like, this is a very big moment. I need to be cognizant of it. You know, my husband's taking pictures and video and I'm like, just trying to stay awake and like half out of it, scared, kind of like deer in headlights, like what's happening? What, you know, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And so they're like, you know, they go over all the things that could happen afterward. And then they're like, graphers host is a thing. So it's when your body starts to fight back the transplant, like anything else, like an organ, but it's in my mm. blood. So it's when the cells in my own body start to produce and start to fight back on the cells that are being, are already in there that the healthy cells. So the cancer cells were like, nope, we still want to keep producing really bad cells and we're going to start fighting you. And it's like a war going on inside of your body. And it comes out in weird ways. Like I had really bad mouth sores to the point where the back of my throat closed up and I could, it was basically on liquids. I had a total body rash, which was like insane. It looked like I had just like gotten out of a horror movie. What else? I had, I couldn't pee, which is a really weird one for like three days straight. Mind you, they've got boluses in me and like all of these things. And they're like, I'm like, I can't pee. I'm like, they're like, what do you mean you can't pee? And I'm like, nothing's coming out. Yeah. <laughs> so they give you like these things to help that, but it wasn't working. So I'm sitting there swelling up like a balloon because I'm got all of these fluids inside me that aren't going anywhere. And I'm very uncomfortable. I've got my skin's freaking out, rashes everywhere. Can't eat food. So I'm only drinking liquids. Like it was a, it, it was a war and my body was going through a war and they were like, we're just going to get you stable enough so you can go home. I was like, I don't even know what that means. I can't eat. I'm like, I can't like do any of these things. They're like, well, you're, you're very immunocompromised. We can't have you on the floor longer than we, than you can because you could get sick. Like, it's like all these weird things going on because they have you on immunosuppressants to suppress your own immune system from attacking more of the cells. So it's like, it's this weird, like situation where they want you to get out of the hospital as soon as possible because you're safer outside of it than in it. Okay. So how many of these IV stem cell infusions did you receive? Just one. So Just it's like a, one. it's a giant one. It's a big one. Like um it's uh, probably the size of your mic. Okay. So it's pretty large. Yeah. I've heard of people getting stem cell transplants and I have a friend who's being told, you know, she may need one at some point in her treatment. Mm -hmm. And something about being like in a room that no one else can be in like a bubble were you in one of those no i was not thankfully um but they basically they because you're so severely compromised like any little infection anything could could kill you at that point because you're so susceptible and they've got you on immunosuppressants and all of these things that you know you're not normally on so mm. you're just really like it's like rebooting a computer. So your computer crashed and now we have to figure out how to just turn it on. And it's never quite the same afterward. Hmm. Okay. So they sent you home. Yeah. I just Googled why does stem cell treatment smell bad? And it says uh, <laughs> BMT recipients emit an odor that smells like tomato soup to some and creamed corn to others. 
-hmm. The preservatives used in storing the stem cells create the fragrance that is released through one's breathing and pores. I didn't even know that. I learned so something new. The people. So you smelled like you. you yeah, it you was smelled me. Cre it was you emitting oh, yeah. the smell of cream corn. Mm -hmm. and other wow. Oh, my goodness. And your brother was able to give you his stem cells. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. So he literally saved my life. Yeah. What was the process of them uh, extracting the stem cells from him? So it's it's pretty easy, but it's pretty... I don't want to scare people off from doing it, So, but I will be completely honest. So they give you um, medicine to take to boost your, your cells, cell production, because they want to get as many as possible. And it feels from what he said, like the worst flu you've ever had. Hmm. It knocks you out. The harvest itself is they just put a IV right into your, the vein that's like right in your neck and they just take them out, take out your blood. Okay. Like that's it. And then they sift through the blood later, but it's like an eight, it's a, a week on the, on the meds and then maybe six hours in the hospital, uh, in the hospital, but you're on the floor that does like the, the, uh, blood transfusions and platelet transfusions. So you're not like in a hospital room. They don't hold you overnight. You got to go home that day and that was it. So we have to have a really bad flu. Yeah, to save someone's life. So he was able to give you stem cells and that was in what, 2016? Yes. And then you went home to get out of there to get from mm -hmm. all the yucky things that are in hospitals. Yeah, and I was there for 30-ish days. So I went home and they still were like, you can't leave the house basically. Uh, because you're so immunocompromised. So I didn't, for two months, I was at home. I didn't leave the house. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't, uh, and it was winter. So obviously I didn't really want to leave the house. Um, but I bubbled myself. Like most people don't do what I did. I took it to the extreme because I did not want to go back into the hospital because I got, because I wanted to go have lunch with my friends. Like I wasn't going to be a completely ridiculous person. <laughs> like I could wait. I was fine with that. <laughs> Were you allowed um, to have... I'm wondering if you're allowed to even have visitors. I was, as long as they came in, hand sanitized, um, washed their hands, like weren't sick, weren't feeling sick, weren't around sick people, like no babies, yeah. no nothing. Like we were, we were really strict about it, really rigid. So it was basically like we experienced COVID before COVID happened. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, uh, we were just really, we probably went over the top a little bit, but it was necessary because I didn't want to get sick. I didn't want no, we to did go too. back into the hospital. I was like, that's, I just spent like how many days there? I'm good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't even in the situation you were in and we had a note on the door that said, you know, if you have, if you are sick, have been sick, have been near someone who was sick or have thought about being sick, please do not come in. Oh. Like I'm on chemo, I'm on chemo and radiation, whatever, like, no, thank you. And you were in even, you were in a far more compromised position. Yeah. And not interested no. in any risk whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So you had that 30 days mm -hmm. at home. And then what was next? So I started to like, actually, after two months, um, I remember I first evening or not even evening, first time out, I went and had lunch with friends and it was like the most exhausting process in the entire world. Mm. It was stimulation overload from the people, just things going on. And I just sat there and like, was like, oh my God, what is happening? <laughs> like I hadn't been around people in months, you know, I hadn't, like there was a lot going on. Like we were in a restaurant, like 
holy cow, talk about overload. Like it was just like stimulation. It was too much. I went back home and went to bed. <laughs> I was so exhausted. Okay. Then six months later, I was just having a routine blood work done because I was still going every few weeks because they were monitoring it so closely. They said, your cancer's back again. They caught it really early. I wasn't feeling anything. The heard the look on her face was like devastation. And I said, okay. And she goes, we're going to do a bone marrow biopsy right now. We'll give you some time and we'll be back. And they, they left the room. And I looked at my husband and I just said, I can't do it again. I can't. Yeah. At that moment, in that very moment, I didn't have it. Like I just mentally, physically, emotionally couldn't, couldn't. I was so exhausted. So exhausted. And I looked at my said, I can't do it. And he goes, it's okay. Just what do you want to do? He goes, because we don't have to if you don't want to. And I just cried and I said, I don't know. And the first thought that popped into my head was my dad, my husband, my family. I was like, fuck. I'm not doing this for me this time. This is them. I go, I can't, I can't go back to my dad and say that I just didn't even want to try again. After everything we had been through, I just think I couldn't, I wasn't, I wasn't fighting for me at that point. I was fighting for them because I didn't have it. I didn't. I like cried for like, I don't know how long, five, 10 minutes. And they came back in and they were like, okay, are you ready to do this? And I said, yeah, let's do it. Mm. And I looked at him and I looked at my husband. I go, I'm not doing this for me. It's for everyone else. We go, because I can't. I don't have it in me to do it for me anymore. Yeah, it sounds like the do it for yourself was, was empty. The tank was completely empty. There were no reserves. There was nothing. If you were going to do it again, it was going to be for them. You're like putting it all. Wow. I mean, I don't need to recreate it. You made it clear. Hmm. I just wow. had, I had nothing left to give. I had nothing in me. And so we, you know, they, they pulled the bone marrow and they were like, well, let's set up an appointment, come back in a few days. We'll, we'll, you know, map out the next step. I was like, okay. You know, cause we, we assumed it was either another stem cell transplant injection or we didn't know. We didn't, we just, we just assumed. And so we came back a few days later, I think, and obviously it was confirmed. It was, it was back and we were like, okay, is it stem cell again? And they're like, we're like, we're going to try that map again to see if it helps and if it works because it's a less aggressive route then we'll see we'll, we'll we'll go from there we don't know and this was the treatment that was this the treatment that was just brutal no that was the halidol mm -hmm. that had you like there was bugs crawling on you yeah no it's it's the second immunotherapy that we wrote the letter of compassion to to the fda yeah. and pfizer and we were like, well, let's try it because we don't, I'm in, I'm in uncharted waters here. Like this is not, 
there's no yeah. statistics there's no analysis there's no nothing at this point so and i was like it was a lot less aggressive so it was like fine sign me up where do we go so we do it they're like we're gonna do four rounds again and wait and see what happens so we did four rounds and i got into remission and i said okay are we doing stem cell transplant what are we doing they're like we're just gonna wait i was like mm, what do you mean yeah what do you mean <laughs> we're just gonna wait he goes she she was like we're just gonna see if this works we're gonna see how your body reacts we're gonna see what happens because if this worked and you're in remission we don't need to do another stem cell transplant because what happens when you have a stem cell transplant is they can see how many stem cells are your donor cells and yours. And through this test, I don't, it's blood work. I have no idea what it's called, um, but there's a name. And they kept seeing that my brother's cells were the dominant portion of my body. So they were like, we're just gonna wait. We're gonna see if, if his cells take over again. Thank you, because that was the question I was going to ask. Like, yeah. Why would they not do it again? Because his cells were still dominant and still providing your body what it needed. Right, and killing the cancer cells best they could. But there were so many mm. that it just like, you know, I was like, okay, well, how long do we wait? Like, you know, I'm just like waiting to die, like again? Like, I don't understand. So they're like, no, you're not dying. They're like, your brother's cells are working. They're doing its job. They're killing the bad cells. They're the dominant part of your body it's fine you're going to be fine I mean they didn't say that but I think the way they communicated it without saying it because they didn't know I was going to be fine kind of led me to believe that it was going to be okay so we waited and I've been in remission since then so it'll be it'll it just happened to be three years at the end of October it's crazy that's wonderful yeah it's a it was a, it's a wild ride. It's a fucking wild ride. <laughs> yeah. The end of October is my date, too. My no evidence of disease is mm. end of October. Oh, my goodness. My heart has just cracked open spending this time with you, and I couldn't be happier. Yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation, you know, to talk so candidly about what we go through. It's rare because you tend to soften the blow for people. Does that make sense? Yes. We do a lot of that as we're going through treatment, softening the blow, telling people it's going to be okay. Yeah, you end up comforting everyone else. It's the craziest thing. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you didn't feel compelled to comfort me and you're willing to just be open and honest about what you have been through yeah. it's incredible it, it, nothing I ever expected and nothing I looking back it still feels really like a weird time like I don't it doesn't feel Sounds real like you, almost yeah and Casey on what you devote yourself to yeah I don't know what word it would be. It feels like, it, like there's a peacefulness in you right now, at least in this moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I 
had a really hard time coming out of all of this in the beginning, like a really hard time in survivorship. Why? What did I do? What did I do wrong? What was in me? How did I not know? All of these, all of these questions we ask ourselves. What's my purpose? What am I doing? I feel more at peace now than I think I've ever felt. And I feel I'm happier than I've ever been in my life which is crazy to think because I didn't think that was possible. It definitely, you are just so different afterward and it makes you assess the things that we do and think and feel. What's the point of not a lot of it? You know, it's, it's nonsense at the end of the day. I mean, it's not, but it is. I just want everyone to really, I want to help as many women as I can put their lives back together after what we've been through because the struggle is real. It's hard. And that's, you know, that give, having that focus and that purpose has been really grounding for me because mm -hmm. if I can just help one person, that's all that matters. It has been a real honor for you to have opened your heart up to me and everyone who's listening. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to speak so candidly about what we've been through. And it's rare. A lot of times you, like you said, we soften it. And I think that if we weren't to do that so much, it would help because are, I feel like we're so scared of death when it's really not a, it's not a scary thing. Well, you have a beautiful day. Thank you so much. Thank you. I so appreciate it. <laughs> so do I. Bye-bye. Bye. Follow Casey on Instagram at The Happier Hustle. Her website is thehappierhustle.com. And she hosts a private Facebook group for women called Thriving After Cancer Treatment. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously the Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as the Saint Kid. See you all on the next episode and thank you so much for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and this podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.